Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. The White House today urging Americans to leave Ukraine within 48 hours, saying an invasion could happen at any time. President Biden announcing a plan to divide frozen Afghan funds, with half going to victims of 9-11 and the other half going to the people of Afghanistan. But could the money get into the wrong hands? Canada's Ontario declares a state of emergency. Truckers could now lose their licenses and get hit with six-digit fines. But the Freedom Convoy's chief demand might be fulfilled. Nebraska logged the lowest unemployment rate in the history of the U.S. last October. And today, we have an exclusive interview with the governor on what keeps the state working. And an information booth in New York City under assault. The booth is part of a global movement that helps Chinese people renounce their Communist Party membership. Russia could invade Ukraine as early as next week, the White House warns today. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan encouraged Americans to leave Ukraine as soon as possible. Any American in Ukraine should leave as soon as possible and in any event in the next 24 to 48 hours. Sullivan warns that an invasion could happen at any time and that it is likely to begin with airstrikes. It could begin during the Olympics, uh, despite a lot of speculation uh, that it would only happen after the Olympics. President Biden today spoke with other transatlantic leaders for over an hour. And according to Sullivan, NATO is very strong now and the West is united. Should Russia choose to take military action, our response would include severe economic sanctions with similar packages imposed by the European Union, the United Kingdom, Canada and other countries. Sullivan says that Biden is expected to meet with Russian President Vladimir Putin over the phone. The U.S. estimates that Russia has more than 100,000 troops near the Ukraine border, with thousands more added this week. And the U.S. is sending 3,000 more troops to Poland. They will depart in the next couple of days. And President Biden this morning took action to redirect frozen Afghanistan funds with plans to split the money between the Afghan people and families of 9-11 victims. This as the president rejects claims made by top military officials that his administration failed in the Afghanistan evacuation. NTD's Melina Wisecup reports from Washington, D.C. President Biden's handling of foreign affairs is under the microscope. Today, the president took new action on Afghanistan, signing an executive order to divide frozen Afghan funds. $7 billion sitting in the Afghan Central Bank in New York will be split in half. Three and a half billion will go to families of the 9-11 victims. And this executive order aims to create a legal way to get that money into the hands of those families. These are Afghan resources that were not, that had nothing to do with, with 9-11. In some ways, I suspect it's almost kind of like a, a bribe because who's going to object to reimbursing victims of 9-11. The other three and a half billion will go to help the Afghan people who are now struggling under Taliban rule. This money will provide life necessities like water, shelter and health care. People wouldn't be starving in Afghanistan today. We wouldn't have a massive humanitarian crisis if the Biden administration hadn't abandoned the Afghan people the way they did. So this is a crisis that he created. And I think the concerns with shifting humanitarian funds to Afghanistan is how much of this will wind up in the hands of the Taliban or be controlled by the Taliban or influenced by the Taliban. Despite the backlash from both parties, President Biden is doubling down on his strategy for the withdrawal. Last night on NBC's Nightly News, Biden directly rejected criticism from top military officials who said the administration ignored the facts on the ground. No, that's not what I was told. I'm rejecting them. What I was told, no one told me that, look, there was no good time to get out. And a new report today from the Wall Street Journal that the Taliban is holding at least nine people in Kabul, including one American, a U.S. resident, and British citizens. 
And this action from the Biden administration today to divide up this money with some of it going to help those Afghan people comes as mounting pressure is placed on the Biden administration to do more to help those who are suffering under the Taliban. And the White House describes this executive order as designed to keep that money from getting into the hands of the Taliban. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskopf, NTD News. And to take a closer look at how Biden's handled the latest international issues, Afghanistan and the Russia crisis, tune in to NTD's Capitol Report with Steve Lance at 8 p.m. tonight. And two U.S. senators on the Intelligence Committee are calling for transparency about the CIA collecting information on Americans in bulk. This comes after the intelligence agency declassified some documents at their request. Here's more. Based on released documents, Senators Ron Wyden and Martin Heinrich warned Thursday that the CIA has a secret bulk collection program to get Americans' data. The senators are also concerned about how the agency searches and handles the information. Last April, the two senators sent a letter to the Director of National Intelligence and the head of the CIA. They were asking for more details about the program for it to be declassified. They said the program operated, quote, outside the statutory framework that Congress and the public believe govern this collection. The CIA released a series of redacted recommendations about the program. Large parts of the documents were blacked out. The Canadian government has signaled what might be a win for the trucker convoy that's protesting vaccine passports. But it's issued a state of emergency. Demonstrators now face losing their licenses and up to $100,000 fines. NTD's Miguel Moreno reports. In what might be a win for the trucker convoy, Ontario's Premier says that most COVID-19 restrictions will be done away with. Today, we're on track to very soon remove almost all restrictions for businesses as part of our reopening plan. And we heard from Dr. Moore last week and again yesterday that he is now working on a plan that will allow us to remove the vaccine passport system. Dropping the vaccine mandate has been the convoy's chief demand, but Ford says his plans are led by health and science, not by protesters. He hasn't given a date that'll mark the end of COVID-19 vaccine passports, and Ford says the government will continue to clamp down on trucker demonstrations, including those in Ottawa and the U.S.-Canada Ambassador Bridge. I'm using my authority as Premier of Ontario to declare a state of emergency in our province. And I will convene Cabinet to use legal authorities to urgently enact orders that will make crystal clear it is illegal and punishable to block and impede the movement of goods, people, and services along critical infrastructure. Demonstrators now face losing their licenses and up to $100,000 fines. On top of that, the Ontario Supreme Court has ordered a freeze on the trucker convoy's fundraiser. We've gotten a lot of people writing in afraid or wondering what's going on, what our stance is going to be, are we going to just bend? Heather Wilson and Jacob Wells founded Give, Send, Go, the crowdfunding website home to the convoy's fundraiser. Before moving to Give, Send, Go, the campaign had once before been defunded by GoFundMe. The new fundraiser has accrued over $8 million, and the company says it won't bend to the core. And now you said on Twitter that Canada has absolutely zero jurisdiction over how you manage your funds. Are you saying that the Canadian government can't stop you from transferring campaign donations to the Freedom Convoy? That's exactly right. They're, these funds exist in our accounts in, on sovereign U.S. soil, and the Canadian government with the existing order does not have any right under that existing order to touch them. Now, they could go about a bunch of different other avenues and those haven't been done yet, but yeah, they, they don't. Now, once, once those funds are received into the hands of those Canadians, how the Canadian government wants to respond, that will be on them, but... Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and the Ontario Premier say the convoys are hurting the country's economy by disrupting the flow of goods between the U.S. and Canada. Miguel Moreno, NTD News. Nine Phoenix police officers were injured today when a gunman ambushed them during a house shooting. 
The Phoenix Police Department says they are all expected to survive and that the gunman was found dead in the house. NTD's Allison Lee has the details. Phoenix police responded to a 911 call about a woman being shot in a house early Friday morning. Officers arrived at the scene in southwestern Phoenix around 2.15 a.m. One officer first approached the house. He was actually invited inside by the suspect, an adult male. As he approached the doorway, the suspect ambushed him with a gun and shot him several times. That officer was able to get back and get away to safety. Other officers then surrounded the house and another man, not the gunman, came out from the house holding an infant. He placed the infant on the ground and was detained by police. Other officers also moved in to uh, secure that infant. At that time, the suspect opened fire on the officers again, striking four officers and also striking uh, four other officers, so eight in total, four directly with gunfire and four indirectly with uh, ricochet or shrapnel, bullet shrapnel. The gunman then barricaded himself inside the house. Officers tried to negotiate for a surrender. They eventually entered the house and found the gunman dead. They also found the woman who was the victim of the initial shooting call. She was critically injured. I know the relationship between the suspect that shot the police officers and the woman who was injured inside. They are former uh, boyfriend and girlfriend. They have a child in common. I believe that child that was involved in, the, in this incident is their child in common. Officers confirmed that the baby is safe and they don't have any information to suggest that the baby was brought out as part of the ambush. The Phoenix Police Department estimates that nine is the highest number of officers they've ever had injured in a single incident. If I seem upset, I am. This is senseless, it doesn't need to happen and it continues to happen over and over again. The department is still investigating the case and hasn't determined the motive of the attack. They also haven't confirmed how the gunman died. Allison Lee, NTD News. Thousands of public employees in New York City must either get vaccinated today or lose their jobs. The mayor recently said they're not being fired. Rather, they're quitting. NTD's Miguel Moreno has that story. Data from the city says that roughly 1% of New York City's public workforce could be fired by tomorrow. That's more than 3,000 workers, including firefighters, police officers, and educators. According to Fox News, 25 firefighters are expected to lose their jobs, but more than 600 first responders await the approval or denial of their vaccine exemption requests. Firefighter Union President Andrew Ansbro raised the issue of natural immunity. Most, if not all of them, became infected with COVID directly from their work for the city. And it's appalling to myself and many others that natural immunity that was gained by the infection from working for New York City was then ignored by New York City as an acceptable alternative to vaccination. Some opponents of the policy say they've recovered from COVID-19 and have the antibodies to prove it. Some studies suggest that the immunity obtained through infection provides strong protection against the virus. Mayor Eric Adams says that the city isn't firing the unvaccinated. He says they're quitting. Miguel Moreno, NTD News. A grassroots movement is under attack in the U.S.'s most populous city. It aims to help people renounce their memberships to the Chinese Communist Party. Here's more. New York City's Flushing community is home to many colorful displays lining the streets. But on Thursday, a man attacked one of them. A pop-up exhibit at an information booth. The booth has been there for over a decade. It's part of a grassroots movement that swept the globe starting 17 years ago. Under it, volunteers around the globe run information booths that help people quit the Chinese Communist Party, or CCP. That includes tourists from mainland China, and Chinese people living overseas. The movement has made a splash. Under it, over 390 million Chinese people have renounced their membership with the CCP and its affiliated organizations. Pop-up displays at these booths often showcase photos and information about Beijing's human rights abuses, like the 1989 Tiananmen Square massacre and the decades-long suppression of meditation discipline Falun Gong. Volunteer booths like these can also be found in Canada, France, Australia, South Korea, and Japan. 
The smashed booth is located in Flushing, Queens, the second largest Chinese community in New York City. A witness at the scene said she couldn't sleep after the incident. I've been volunteering here for 12 years, and it's the first time that I came across something like this. Xu says the man smashed almost everything, from displays to the decorations. A passerby was asking if this man lost his sanity and why he was doing this. Other volunteers say the man in black tried to smash other booths but failed, and that they've reported the case to the New York City Police Department. These volunteer booths in New York have come under similar attacks before. During one of them from 2020, a volunteer suffered light injury. In 2008, some volunteers were physically and verbally attacked. Then New York Chinese Consul General later admitted he encouraged the incident. The volunteers in Flushing say they've already bought a new stand and will continue their grassroots efforts. The FDA is delaying a decision on whether to approve the Pfizer vaccine for babies as young as six months old. The agency had planned a meeting to discuss it next Tuesday. Pfizer asked for emergency use authorization of its vaccine for kids between six months to four years old. The FDA changed the plan based on a preliminary assessment of Pfizer. Two top FDA officials said today that we believe additional information regarding the ongoing evaluation of a third dose should be considered as part of our decision-making for potential authorization. Pfizer is currently testing a three-dose regimen on young children. The vaccine maker says it believes a third dose will offer better protection. The FDA says it will not decide whether to authorize the shots until they receive additional data from that trial. And the European Union's drug regulator is reopening an investigation into reports of menstrual changes after mRNA COVID shots. Reports of menstrual disorders after vaccination haven't been reported just in the EU, but by women worldwide. NTD's Grace Coulter has the details. Europe's drug regulator is investigating a possible link between mRNA COVID vaccines and changes in women's menstrual cycles. The Drug Safety Committee of the European Union's Medicines Agency announced the investigation Friday as reviewing reports of heavy bleeding and missed periods after the Moderna and BioNTech Pfizer shots. The committee had previously investigated the issue, but could not establish a firm link between the menstrual disorders and the vaccines. But after reviewing recent evidence, including new scientific studies, the EMA said the committee has decided to reopen the case. The agency says it will conduct an in-depth evaluation by reviewing reported incidents, clinical trial data and scientific literature. The, recommendation of the EMA says it's not yet clear whether there is a connection and added there's no evidence that vaccines have any effect on fertility. According to a recent study funded by the National Institutes of Health, COVID-19 vaccination was linked with a small temporary change in menstrual cycle length. As of February 2nd, nearly 50,000 reports of period changes after vaccination have been logged in the UK alone. This has triggered an ongoing review by the UK's Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency. Grace Coulter, NTD News, New York. Nebraska logged the lowest unemployment rate in the history of the country last October. And today, NTD's Paul Graney had an exclusive interview with Nebraska Governor Pete Ricketts on the driving power behind the workforce. NTD's Chenny Wu has the highlights. Last October, Nebraska's unemployment rate dropped to 1.9 percent, the lowest this country's ever seen. Nebraska Governor Pete Ricketts, an accomplished businessman, says this is because of the state's pro-business policies. We understand that we have to create the rules and regulations that allow businesses to succeed. Saying, for example, that Nebraska is a right-to-work state, meaning that workers aren't forced to join a labor union, which often require union dues and other membership fees. When I ran a business, we, when we were looking to expand outside of Nebraska, we specifically looked at states, if you were not a right-to-work state, we did not consider your state for an expansion. Ricketts says Nebraska has had a strong bounce back since the pandemic. Politico actually did a scorecard of all the state's pandemic response, and Nebraska was ranked number one based upon areas such as health, 
social well-being, economy, education. And in fact, right now today, we have more people employed in manufacturing than we did pre-pandemic. But the governor points out inflation as a big problem. You know, a lot of people in my state travel long distance, maybe 60 miles a day to their job. And when gas goes up as much as it has because of the bad policies of the Biden administration and because of inflation, that hits them right in the pocketbook. He calls on the Fed to act now, saying the federal government and the central bank have played a big part in the rising prices. The longer the Fed delays, the harder this is going to be to control. And you, if, they, if they continue to not act, at some point down the road, they will be forced to act. And that's when you get into the situation where you may have those super high interest rates. In an interview with NBC on Thursday, President Biden maintained that the inflation rate will taper off throughout the year. Chenny Wu, NTD News. Coming up, a ribbon-cutting ceremony was held in Brooklyn today for the opening of a new one-stop shop healthcare center. Some taxi drivers in New York City are getting a wage increase, but the famous yellow cabs are not included. And a preview of the biggest game of the year. How do the Rams and Bengals match up? And what will be the deciding factors? That and more here on NTD News. New York City finished building its third community health care center since the pandemic started. It'll be a one-stop shop for all medical needs. NTD's Jason Perry attended the ribbon-cutting ceremony. It cost about $65 million to construct this 55,000-square-foot health care center. The president and CEO of Health and Hospitals NYC, Dr. Mitchell Katz, said everyone is welcome adding that no one should suffer in silence, regardless of insurance, the ability to pay, or immigration status. Health and Hospital is very proud that we provide care to everyone regardless of the ability to pay. Uh, and that was codified in the last administration in the creation of uh, NYC Care, where we not only will provide all levels of care, including pharmacy, laboratory tests, radiology, hospital, this center is said to be a one-stop shop for all healthcare needs. It has a circular floor layout, and patients can walk through the various rooms to get the care they may need, such as dental care, eye care, and mental illness treatment. We're going to serve the whole community and the whole body, not only COVID patients, but everyone. Pediatric care, adolescence care, women's health, and a floor dedicated to diabetes. Mayor Eric Adams encouraged everyone to come and get a primary care physician. He also commented on the record speed in which the center was built. In less than six months, unbelievable, uh, something that normally would take six years. The Department of Design and Construction, Commissioner Thomas Foley, says they were able to build it so quickly because the procurement rules were relaxed due to the pandemic. Um, we were able to hire a construction manager. We were able to work with the designer directly. And these are things that we cannot normally do. This community health center here in Brooklyn is the last of three health centers built in New York City during the pandemic. The other two are located in the Bronx and Queens. This one here in Brooklyn is expected to begin taking patients on Monday. Jason Perry, NTD News, New York. New York City is one of the most expensive places to live in the U.S. Today, the city acknowledged that inflation hits low-income earners the most, so they're raising the wage for some taxi drivers. NTD's Arian Pazdar has more from Manhattan City Hall. The mayor says taxi drivers are what keep the city moving before and during the pandemic. And they're not only moving people. According to the mayor, drivers delivered 65 million meals during the pandemic. So today the mayor announced that drivers are now getting paid a wage that reflects their efforts. Make sure that they get, they're receiving a day's pay uh, for a day's work. Four higher vehicle drivers will see their minimum pay rates increase by 5.3%. That doesn't include drivers who charge by the meter, such as the well-known yellow cabs. Yellow taxi drivers have a different standard, a different pay standard, um, and so we'll be looking at uh, the comprehensive work that needs to happen on that end separately. The race will affect almost 100,000 drivers for apps such as Uber, for example. So will that raise the cost for the consumer? No, it's not supposed to increase. Now, we can't control what the app companies may do. 
It's not supposed to do that. She added that apps would lose customers if they start increasing prices now, amid the economic fallout of the pandemic. New York City has by far the most taxis in the U.S. and most of the drivers have complained about struggling to make ends meet in the past. Arian Pastar, NTD News, New York. Super Bowl 56 is just two days away and though Los Angeles is favored to win, Cincinnati has had no problem as underdogs. NTD's Dave Martin has more. After three rounds of playoffs, we're left at the Super Bowl matchup few predicted. The Rams weren't exactly favorites in a conference with Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers, but are a veteran team built to win now. Matt Stafford, Aaron Donald, and Von Miller are all 30 or over, at a time when NFL players typically see a decline in production. And even though Jalen Ramsey and Cooper Cup are 27 and 28 respectively, they're old men compared to Cincy's nucleus. While Joe Burrow and Joe Mixon are 25, star receiver Jamar Chase is just 21 and fellow wideout T. Higgins is 23. The obvious talents combined with the lack of experience and the fact that the franchise hadn't previously won a playoff game in more than three decades makes them unpredictable. What we found out so far, though, is that Burrow is calm in the clutch. How they match up, though, will be interesting. Although the Rams boast one of the best corners in Ramsey, because they play a lot of zone, he won't always be covering the dynamic Chase, who is the offensive rookie of the year. But the Bengals still have to give time for Burrow to throw him the ball against LA's vaunted pass rush. The Bengals star quarterback was sacked an NFL high 51 times this year, plus another 12 times in the playoffs. Donald, meanwhile, was seventh in the league in sacks, while Miller totaled five in eight games with the Rams and is second among active players in career sacks. When the Rams have the ball, Odell Beckham looks to be the X factor. Although Cooper Cup put up far and away the best numbers in the NFL, the former Pro Bowler Beckham has looked better and better since coming over in November. If Beckham goes off and the Bengals have to help off of Cooper Cup, it could be a long day for Cincy's defense. Dave Martin, NTD News, New York. The Olympics yesterday saw Sean White's final run, Michaela Schifrin's performance in the Super G, and the latest on Camilla Valieva's doping controversy. NTD's Dave Martin has more. Sean White's final career run started with a bang, but ended with a fall. The three-time gold medal halfpipe champion was in line for silver after a successful second run. By his third and final go, he found himself in fourth and in need of another clutch performance. Instead, the 35-year-old legend of the sport had to settle for a standing ovation from the crowd, hugs from his competitors, and a teary goodbye after falling on his second trick. White previously announced he's retiring from competition following the conclusion of these games. Michaela Schiffen rebounded from a pair of did-not-finishes to place ninth in the 44-person Super G field. Though she had never run this race in the Olympics, she won it in the World Championships in 2019. According to ESPN, the 26-year-old is planning to compete in next week's downhill and combined races. Camila Valiva's fate on the ice will be decided at an urgent hearing at the Court of Arbitration for Sport. This after the International Testing Agency confirmed reports that the 15-year-old tested positive for a banned substance back in December. The positive test was finally flagged by a lab in Sweden on Tuesday, the day after Valiva led the Russian Olympic Committee to gold in the mixed team event and hours before the medal ceremony, which has been postponed. But the Russian anti-doping agency Nodnaz Rosada said they were told of the positive result on Monday, not Tuesday as reported by the ITA. Valiva was hit with an interim ban from the Olympics by Rosada, but it was reversed after an appeal. The International Testing Agency, which was formed by the IOC in 2018, will prosecute on their behalf at the Court of Arbitration for Sport. Valiva's next scheduled event is Tuesday's short program. However, the fate of the Russian Olympic Committee's gold in the team event is still unknown. Team USA had come in second, Japan third, followed by Canada. Dave Martin, NTD News. And late breaking news on this story, the U.S. could prosecute the Russians involved in the doping case under the American Rodchenkov Act. That's according to the head of the U.S. anti-doping agency, Travis Tigert. The act was signed into law in 2020 and carries fines of up to $1 million and a maximum jail sentence of up to 10 years. The act was named after Grigory Rodchenkov, a former Russian anti-doping laboratory head. He became a whistleblower and helped expose Russia's state-sponsored doping following the 2014 Olympics. And coming up, during an operation to crack down on illegal imports, authorities have recovered millions of dollars worth of counterfeit sports merchandise. 
and a NASA research center in California has attracted some turkeys. The scientists say they don't really know where their feathered neighbors came from, but hope the birds can be safely relocated. More on that when we return. Authorities announced on Wednesday that ahead of the Super Bowl, they have seized tens of millions of dollars worth of fake sports merchandise. The seizure came during an operation to crack down on illegal imports. NTD's Eileen Ang has the details. Local and federal authorities teamed up to identify online marketplaces, flea markets, retail outlets, pop-up shops and street vendors selling counterfeit goods during the weeks leading up to the Super Bowl. They seized items such as fake jerseys, hats, rings, t-shirts, jackets, tickets, souvenirs, and thousands of other sports-related items. The products have been prepared to be marketed as legitimate, authentic items. I mean, this is a problem that we're never going to be able to resolve just by conducting law enforcement operations. It's an issue that we have to educate the public like we're doing now, so people can actually differentiate between a counterfeit and a real product. Ricardo Mayoral, acting director of the National Intellectual Property Rights Coordination Center, pointed out some signs of a fake item. First thing you will notice is the quality of the stitching. You see the stitching uh, bleeding over from one letter to the other. Mayoral said holograms can give telltale signs of forgery. But if you incline it towards the light, you won't be able to see the actual colors. And then you will notice that it's two footballs, and the football in the back is barely noticeable. They estimate over 260,000 counterfeit sports-related items, worth about $97.8 million, were recovered during Operation Team Player. The operation is a year-round effort to crack down on illegal importation of fake sports apparel and entertainment merchandise. Some of these uh, jerseys or fake jerseys and, and or t-shirts, we don't know where they're coming from. Um, it, sometimes they uh, help support organized crime. Sometimes they come from uh, host countries that are not necessarily friendly to the United States. In 2021, authorities seized over 2,600 shipments of counterfeit goods worth approximately $822 million. The result came by policing the sale and distribution of counterfeit goods on websites, social media, retail stores, and pop-up shops. Eileen Ang, NTD News, California. According to a policy expert, there is a complete lack of faith in Los Angeles city leaders to address homelessness. A recently published survey shows one thing that almost every Angelino can agree on is the severity of homelessness in the area. Los Angeles residents say they do not trust city and county officials to adequately address the spiraling homelessness crisis flooding the streets. That's according to a survey published on Thursday from a nonpartisan coalition of civil leaders and community members. This is a situation in which you heard over and over again that voters are sophisticated about this. They understand what's going on. They are empathetic, but they are tired of being fearful. They're tired of being disgusted. They're tired of their elected officials not solving the problem. Srago, a longtime policy expert, said government efforts to move both encampments and individuals was discussed at length during surveys. Unless we stop the drugs, homelessness isn't going anywhere. 90% is drugs, one Latino voter said, according to the survey. An African-American voter told pollsters, people are taking advantage of no bail. They're doing the crime, getting arrested, then doing it again. A December Los Angeles Times survey found that 94% of residents saw homelessness as a very serious issue. In all the years I've, I've watched focus groups or conducted focus groups, and it's, you know, in the hundreds, been doing this for decades, uh, never have I seen this kind of consistency in focus group results. The Committee for Greater LA organized groups of Angelinos for the survey. Residents said officials have no accountability for spending taxes, no consistent plan, and no successful tactics. One policy complaint was LA's Proposition HHH from 2016. It allocated $1.2 billion to build 10,000 permanent supportive housing units for the homeless. As of one year ago, 489 units have been built and homelessness has risen by 45% in the last five years. 
The report estimated about two-thirds of the country's homeless population resides in Los Angeles, which equates to about 41,000 individuals on the streets. The survey found that Angelinos are hoping for a non-government organization to take over solving the homeless issue. To be inelegant about this, they, they see this against a backdrop uh, of, of corruption in L.A. city government, to be blunt about it. So no, this is not a time to ask for more money. And if I could add one thing here, uh, context is important. We're in an election year. The Committee for Greater LA sent the results to elected officials and candidates, urging them to listen to their constituents. Scientists at the NASA Ames campus in California work day and night to understand the secrets and mysteries of space. But there is one head-scratching question even rocket scientists struggle to solve. Where did the wild turkeys come from? NTD's Cynthia Kai tried to find an answer and learn more about NASA's uninvited and unwanted feathered guests. A flock of turkeys have made a home at NASA's Ames campus in Moffett Field. Officials sent photos of the fowl, which they say are acting quite foul. They say the bird's poor hygiene and mating season aggression disturb the staff's daily operations. The California Department of Fish and Wildlife says there is an upwards of 30 wild turkeys currently roosting on the research center grounds. The flock has lived in the area for a couple years, but the population has increased and the impacts are more noticeable. NASA, as a preventative measure, has hired some uh, professional wildlife trappers who are employed by the uh, um, United States Department of Agriculture. So NASA and USDA are teaming up to trap and relocate these nuisance turkeys. He said wild animal relocation is usually a last resort, but this is a special situation given the important work done at the Ames Research Center. We're going to uh, test all these turkeys that we re relocate for disease. And so that takes resources. That takes manpower. That takes resources. And then if you think about it, if, if you know, wildlife is, a, is an issue in one area, we would never want to relocate it and just make it somebody else's problem. He says the turkeys will be released at an ecological reserve in Santa Clara County, where they can roam freely with other turkeys already living there. Paulia says no one really knows where the turkeys came from, but much of the state's wildlife lives adjacent to cities. Essentially, you know, the wildlife who live in these open spaces do their best to get all their food and water resources um, in the open spaces. But, you know, if, if their food resources dry up and, you know, if, if it's a drought year, they may kind of expand their search and then they end up in uh, more developed areas. A spokesperson at NASA's Ames Research Center told NTD in a statement that the birds have gotten close to the airfield but have not entered. They said the relocation helps to ensure no incidents happen in the future. Officials say if all goes well, the turkeys will be caught, tested, and transported by February 18th. Cynthia Kai, NTD News, California. Coming up, a Chinese businessman is sentenced to seven years in jail for selling Christian books. Despite the criticisms and appeal, the Chinese Communist regime won't change its decision. British Home Secretary Priti Patel promises to find strong and decisive new leadership for the Metropolitan Police Service after Commissioner Dame Cressida Dick suddenly resigned yesterday. Dick has implied she was forced out by the Mayor of London. And two months before the French election, President Macron still hasn't declared whether he will run. We hear from a political analyst about the strategy behind his silence. NTD News brings you more in just a moment. Selling uncensored Bibles is a serious crime in communist China. A businessman, also Christian, was sentenced to seven years in jail for doing so. And an arduous appeal didn't change anything. NTD's Tiffany Meyer has the story. A Chinese businessman's appeal has been denied. That's after he received a seven-year prison sentence. His crime? Selling Christian books. Chen Yu owns the Wheat Bookstore in China's southern Zhejiang province. He was sentenced in 2020 after being charged with what was labeled an illegal business operation. He was also slapped with an over $30,000 fine for the same reason. Chen appealed a decision, but Zhejiang's provincial court upheld the verdict on Thursday. 
Chen's bookstore was a popular source of books for Christians in China. His shop attracted clients not only from his province, but also from those in north and central China. When he was arrested in 2019, the authorities accused him of having sold over 20,000 Bibles and other Christian books. Over 10,000 more found on the premises were destroyed by local authorities. The Chinese communist regime classified Chen's book selling as anti-China. That's because some of the Christian books he sold were printed in Taiwan and the U.S., meaning those versions weren't scrutinized by Chinese authorities, unlike virtually all other religious books available in the country. As Chen's appeal was denied, he now remains in detention in Zhejiang province. A recent document is laying out rules for education in China. One of them states the Chinese Communist Party should make all important decisions in schools and students should be educated for the party. Beijing's Central Committee released the document late last month. It orders officials to build a principal responsibility system under the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party, or CCP. That directive applies to all student grade levels from primary to high school. The document stresses that the CCP's control should be strengthened, describing that goal as a fundamental need for a smooth-running education system. The document also gives instructions for strengthening the CCP's leadership. It urges all primary and secondary schools in China to have CCP cells on campus, meaning offices directly linked to the Communist Party. It also states teachers should understand that these party cells actually run each school. That means these offices would make all important decisions for their schools, including hiring and leading educators. That's to ensure Communist Party directives are carried out. On top of that, the document also asks CCP cells from each school to report to their superiors and the party periodically and describe in detail what's been done to implement those directives. Tensions are reported between British Home Secretary Priti Patel and Mayor of London Sadiq Khan after the Metropolitan Police Commissioner's surprise resignation last night. Dame Cressida Dick made it clear that she was forced out of her role by the London mayor, blighted by a string of high-profile scandals in the force. The Home Secretary wrote in London's Evening Standard that strong and decisive new leadership will be required to restore public confidence. NTD's Eddie Aitken brings us this report. The Home Secretary and Mayor of London have clashed over the departure of the Metropolitan Police Commissioner on Thursday. Dame Cressida Dick made it clear she was forced out of her role by Mayor Sadiq Khan. He told her he did not have confidence in her to lead reforms he wanted to see in the force, following a string of scandals and accusations of a toxic working culture. The Met chief was called to a meeting with the mayor on Thursday afternoon but declined to attend and offered her resignation instead, catching the Home Office by surprise. The Home Secretary will oversee the appointment of the new commissioner and has the final decision, although the process requires her to consult Khan. Dame Cressida has faced a series of scandals during her time, leading Britain's biggest police force, most recently concerning racist, misogynist and homophobic messages exchanged by officers at Charing Cross Police Station. There was an uproar over the rape and murder of Sarah Everard by a serving officer, as well as the force's actions in tackling a vigil held in her memory during COVID restrictions. Dame Cressida announced she was stepping down from the job just hours after insisting she had no intention of doing so in a BBC interview. She said she made the decision with huge sadness following contact with the Mayor of London. He has left me no choice but to step aside as Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police Service. Rank-and-file officers reacted with sadness to her departure, with the chairman of the Metropolitan Police Federation protesting she had been treated unfairly. Dame Cressida said she had agreed to stay on for a short transition period at Khan's request to ensure the stability of the Met and its leadership. Eddie Aitken, NTD News. Going to France, the French presidential election is in two months' time, but President Emmanuel Macron has not yet declared whether he will run for re-election. NTD's France correspondent David Vives meets a political analyst who shares some insights into Macron's silence. While meeting with his Russian counterpart Vladimir Putin earlier this week, French President Emmanuel Macron displayed a solemn demeanor. 
His diplomatic efforts to defuse tensions over the Russia-Ukraine conflict left an open door for further negotiations. Behind the scenes, however, Macron might have been on an unofficial campaign for his re-election. In two months, the French people will elect a new president for the five next years, but Macron still hasn't spoken about whether he will run for a second term. But to some political analysts, like think tank president Henri de Lesquin, his running for re-election is certain. He has a little less than a month left to declare himself, so he is not only trying to limit the attacks that will be stronger when he will go down in the electoral arena, but also to take advantage of the public money to campaign without saying it. It is abusive, but that is how it is. Macron's presidency has been marked with a grassroots yellow vest movement and a rise of public instability over crime and terrorism. It's not surprising that these are hot topics for the current campaign. Delesquin says three topics are marking this year's re-election. One of them is stopping or curbing immigration. French people are concerned with their identity. The degradation of public security, which is also an important issue, and the rise in poverty. This comes from an economy that's not going well, and salaries are impacted by inflation. Macron has been criticized for disregarding the interests of France and instead leaned towards an EU-centered stance. One example of this is when he decided to take down the French flag behind the Arc de Triomphe and replace it with the EU flag in January, marking France's start of the EU Council presidency. For Delesquin, this shows how Macron separates himself from the population. To summarize, one major issue is about France's future, and I believe this is a sensitive topic for the French people. Our president makes France's sovereignty disappear while prioritizing Europe's sovereignty, yet we know that sovereignty is one and inseparable. The presidential campaign is marked by an increase of right-wing candidates, while left-wing politicians are scoring exceedingly lower at the polls. Eric Zemmour, a politician and former journalist who was once called the French Trump due to his stance on immigration, finds himself in a good position next to other right-wing candidates to challenge Macron's succession. David Duves, NTD News, Paris. A freedom convoy inspired by truckers in Canada is facing opposition as it nears the French capital today. Officials mobilized thousands of police in and around Paris and set up checkpoints. The convoy is in protest against COVID-19 restrictions that are still in place in France. This report comes from NTD's Earl Rhodes. Authorities in Paris and Brussels have banned a freedom convoy from entering the cities. Motorways leading into Paris will see additional traffic police. Drivers blocking the free flow of traffic may face a suspension on their licenses. The Freedom Convoy sees several hundred people in trucks and other vehicles driving from the south of France to the capital to demand an end to COVID-19 restrictions. I'm here to carry the voice of freedom, to try and make it heard that we've had enough. We want to go back to our old lives, which were exempt of segregation, and we could go where we wanted, with or without vaccines. Supporters were awaiting the demonstrators as the convoy approached Paris on Friday. The protesters say they plan to head on to Brussels after Paris. The convoy was greeted with cheers, singing and dancing in the southwest city of Lyon on Thursday night. Fireworks were set off and musicians performed with the crowd joining in. Officials say the restrictions that prompted the protest could be lifted within two months ahead of the French presidential election. Similar convoys inspired by the recent Canadian protests have also sprung up in Australia and New Zealand. Earl Rhodes, NTD News. Coming up, Count Valentine's Day is just around the corner and for flower producers in Colombia, business is blooming. Find out more in just a moment here on NTD News. Valentine's Day is coming up on Monday and flower producers in Colombia are getting ready. 
It seems like this year, sales are expected to be better than ever. NTD's Chenny Wu gives us the details. Colombia's flower producers are handling hundreds of thousands of flowers in preparation for Valentine's Day this coming Monday. And most of these flowers are going to the U.S. Colombia is the top flower provider to the U.S. and the world's second largest producer after the Netherlands. And annual sales last year increased to around 300,000 tons. This year, we have seen an increase of 35% versus the first year of the pandemic and an increase of 25% versus the year before the first year of the pandemic. Why? Because day by day, more people are working from home in the countries we export to, and people want to see their homes beautiful. Unlike many other businesses, the flower industry seems to have blossomed since the pandemic. As people stayed at home during the pandemic, they found an emotional support in flowers to help with the confinement, something for mental health. As we say, flowers are food for the soul, and the pandemic highlighted that. Sweethearts buying each other flowers for Valentine's account for around 15 percent of annual sales for Colombia growers. I feel happy knowing that I'm working for another person who does not work in my field, but who receives the item and feels happy. So I really like working here with flowers. And a reminder for those who haven't ordered flowers yet, Valentine's Day is coming very soon. Chenny Wu, NTD News. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.